Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 7th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part two of our presentation, The Night of the Long Knives, based on six articles by Leon de Grell. The Barnes Review had for several years run chapters or portions of chapters from the books of Leon de Grell as articles in its bi-monthly publication. As we have already discussed, de Grell was a Belgian journalist, politician, and founder of the Rexist Party, and then later a National Socialist and Waffen SS volunteer who during the war had worked his way up the ranks from private to colonel. Then, in the last days of combat, he had apparently attained a rank of general, if indeed the promotion was legitimate. But we shall continue to call him a general. Last week we presented two such articles from de Grell, The Civil War Within the German National Socialist Party, and Rome continues to push, the subject, of course, being the controversial Ernst Röhm, the head of the SA. This week we shall present the next two articles in the series, which are The Rome Crisis Worsens and Last Millimeters of the Fuse. As we saw last week, Ernst Röhm was an outspoken proponent of two ideas, basically, really three, of two ideas that were completely contrary to Adolf Hitler. First, he was a Marxist. However, in the capacity in which he served the party, his economic philosophy was secondary to his work. More importantly, He strongly advocated the autonomy of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, or Storm Detachment, of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which was commonly called the Brown Shirts. From the party itself, and once the NSDAP came to power, he insisted upon the complete replacement of the Wehrmacht, the regular German army, with the SA, or the brown shirts. As we have seen Leon de Grell explain, the SA was designed as a paramilitary organization of men who were not formally trained as military officers and soldiers, but who were basically street fighters, mixed with a number of thugs, and mostly patriotic defenders of the party's right to express itself and to hold its meetings and rallies. The SA was formed out of necessity as the violent communist thugs. Germany's early Antifa always sought to infiltrate and disrupt the events held by rival parties, and especially those of the political right. 
The following biography of Ernst Rome appeared as a sidebar to the Barnes Review article titled The Rome Crisis Nears Its Climax, The Last Millimeters of the Fuse, which we will present and discuss here later this evening. We only thought it fitting to present the first, this first, as it illustrates the long relationship which Rome had with the NSDAP and with Adolf Hitler. Ernst Rome was born in Munich, in Germany, in, ni- in 1887, two years before Adolf Hitler. He joined the German army and served throughout the First World War. In 1919, after the war, Rome met Adolf Hitler, a meeting that altered the path of Rome's life. Rome became the leader of the Frontbahn, one of several paramilitary organizations existing in the Weimar Republic. Rome felt angry and betrayed, as most Germans did, over the harsh terms of the Versailles Treaty. Therefore, he happily accepted his old friend Hitler's welcome into the Nazi Party. And just because this editorialist who wrote this biography mentions the Nazi Party, we see that he is very likely, very likely he has antipathy towards National Socialists. That's not always a sign the way the word is used today, but it is true of the past. Rome participated in the attempted 1923 putsch, and by 1925 took a major role in the Nazi party and in history. Sometimes I even use the term Nazi, but in my more formal writing I try to use the term National Socialist, which is the correct term whereas the term Nazi really started out as a disparaging label. Rome participated in the attempted 1923 putsch and by 1925 took a major role in the Nazi party and in history. He began to organize his own paramilitary organization from the quote-unquote sports detachment of the Nazi party. The sports detachment had valiantly defended Hitler during the abortive putsch, which ultimately set, sent Hitler to prison where he wrote Mein Kampf. And in recognition, Hitler renamed the detachment the Sturmabteilung, or Stormtroopers, abbreviated as SA, and appointed Rome as their leader. Rome, the former army captain, took the ragtag crew of ruffians and street thugs that comprised the SA and began to organize and train them in a strict military fashion. And let me note that this does not mean that they had formal military training, as there is much more to that than mere organization and fighting, which Leon D. Grell has explained. This training provided the Nazi party with a strong military arm, which made itself known in several street brawls while defending Hitler and the party. But the relationship between Rome and Hitler deteriorated, mainly over the leadership of the SA 
and the role it would play in achieving the party's goals. Rome wanted the essay to be independent of the party's political structure, but Hitler forbade this, and here's a another statement that shows antipathy towards Hitler, but Hitler forbade this mainly due to his desire to consolidate all control under his position. And this sounds like it was written by someone who disdained the National Socialist cause. Hitler's concept of leadership was not new and was thoroughly and logically outlined in Mein Kampf. A paramilitary wing outside of party control would have a mind of its own and could operate as a fifth column contrary to both the party and the people who would vote it into power. Rome's Marxist leanings would certainly have become manifest if he had gained unbridled control of the SA in the early 1930s. As he seemed to have a disdain for anyone who possessed any degree of wealth and openly wanted a redistribution along the lines of Marxist ideology. Speaking poorly of Hitler's theory of governance, which he probably doesn't even understand, the article continues, which the author probably doesn't even understand, the article continues and says, This objective would have been seriously inhibited if the SA were granted autonomy, meaning Hitler's desire for complete control would have been inhibited. Also, Hitler was increasingly weary of Rome's ever-growing radicalism and the unruly conduct of his brown shirts. When his request, when Rome's request for autonomy was denied, Rome grew spiteful, declaring that Hitler had claimed the glories won by the SA for himself. And actually, Rome is putting the cart before the horse. A political party will get nowhere unless the ideals of its leadership appeal to the people. The men who are merely defending the party speakers should not get credit for the development and expression of those ideals which, in the first place, attracted them to defend those who did develop those things. So Rome seems also to have been sort of an organizational Marxist, perceiving that the least element in an organization should get as much credit for its success as those, as those who conceived the ideas and organized the victory. Our author also seems to be ignorant of the implications of Rome's objectives. Continuing with this article, Hitler established himself as supreme commander of the SA with Rome as his subordinate in hopes that the unruly nature of the SA would be curbed. But Rome militarized the SA further, organizing and training them into a more disciplined organization. Rome also eased the army's fears 
and gain usage of military facilities for SA training by pledging his support in any military operation where SA assistance could be used. Rome's actions caused Hitler to debate his own ability to control the stormtroopers. Nevertheless, the SA continued to perform its duties as the enforcement arm of the Nazi party. Rome amalgamated other existing paramilitary groups into the SA, causing its membership to soar. But by this time, the Nazi party was beginning to exert more and more control over Germany's political and social institutions. The SA now seemed obsolete, even dangerous, since their violent nature tended to generate negative feelings toward the Nazis and thereby undermine party goals. Therefore, Hitler decided to shed the now unusable resource of the SA. And in truth, once the National Socialist German Workers' Party came to power and could use the power of the state to liquidate the violent communist factions that necessitated the organization of the SA in the first place, the SA simply became superfluous and obsolete. But even with this, Hitler did not want to dissolve it for the sentimental feelings that he had for it, and instead wanted to find a role for it in its original capacity as a defender of the party platform. A gracious Ernst Rome may well have perceived that, accepted its consignment, or even its dissolution, and he may have taken a well-earned place in some position within the new government. Instead, while Hitler brought the NSDAP to victory and wanted to raise all of Germany from the ashes, it is apparent that Rome wanted to treat the political victory as a conquest and Germany as a pie to be sliced up for his own purposes. So the two men were on a collision course, there is no doubt. With this, we shall present the next article in the series, The Rome Crisis Worsens, by Leon de Grel. A preface which seems to have been the work of an editor reads thus, Mollified by Adolf Hitler's moderation and carefully calculated attentions, the German army, known as the Reichswar, had little by little fallen into step with the new regime, meaning the National Socialist government. Although without enthusiasm and ever on its guard, and very attentive especially to the verbal outbursts of men like Ernst Röhm, who did not hesitate to proclaim that he would throw the old system out on its ear. Leon de Grel proceeds, that introduction probably being written by an editor. Adolf Hitler continued to hope that by temporizing or really by promoting an atmosphere of political moderation, that by temporizing, the Reichswehr and the SA would balance each other off, the former growing larger and more modern 
within its proper sphere, the military, and the later acting with greater wisdom to support the political initiatives of the new government. Some people think I should say sphere, which is fine, I guess. Again and again, the Fuhrer repeated, the one serves the nation, whose territory it defends. The other is the instrument of the party, whose ideas it protects. They form the two columns upon which the Third Reich rests, citing the French-language History of the German Army by Jacques Benoit Méchan. Rome, or Benoit Méchan, probably, Rome owed everything to Hitler. Without Hitler, in 1921, he would never have commanded a single SA unit. If Hitler had not called him back from South America in 1931, he would have continued on in Bolivia as just another lieutenant colonel or colonel frequently frequenting the cafes. Yet in 1934, he thought himself to be a secular Saint Peter called to command by the good Lord himself. Quoting, quoting Rome, I'll never go downhill again, he used to roar, haunted by the memory of the come-down that he had previously taken to South America among those millions of mestizos, him, the racist. And that reminds me of some of the supposed all-right leaders we see today. He saw himself become a new Carnot, the former president of France, who was also assassinated. He saw himself to become a new Carnot, nay, Napoleon Bonaparte. The German army would be his fife. And quoting Rome again, all victorious revolutions based on an ideology must have their own army. You cannot conduct a revolutionary war with reactionary troops. De Grel goes on to say, Hitler, who knew how to maneuver and diligently work his way around obstacles to get safely to his goal, was getting on Rome's nerves and exasperating him. In June of 1933, this would be a year before the Night of the Long Knives. In June of 1933, after finishing a substantial meal at the famous Kempinski restaurant in Berlin and having drunk too much as usual, referring to Rome, he had burst out, Hitler is leading me around by the nose. He'd rather not rush things. He is betraying all of us. Now he's getting chummy with his generals. Of course, the National Socialists had been in power for not quite six months by that time. Here, de Grel is citing André Brassard from the French-language book Hitler and His Time. Then Rome reproached Hitler with this supreme crime he is becoming a man of the world. He had just ordered himself a black suit. And de Grel says that in order to be a proletarian, Hitler should have received the diplomatic corps or called on Marshal von Hindenburg in a cap 
and overalls. DeGrell using sarcasm to counter Rome's contentions on Hitler ordering himself a black suit. But Hitler never desired to be a proletarian. And if Rome had ever actually read Mein Kampf, somehow I don't think so. I don't think he did. Continuing with de Grel, bringing the Reichswehr to heel, and above all replacing it, was becoming a veritable obsession with Rome. Quoting Rome again, I don't want a replastering job on the old imperial army. Are we or are we not making a revolution? If we're making a revolution, something new has got to come out of our momentum. Something like the levee and masse of the French Revolution. We do the same thing or we are done for. The generals are old fogies. The officers and the cadets, mollycoddled at school, don't know anything but their old notebooks and their barracks. Enough of their rigmarole. It's time we got rid of them, citing Brassad once again. It's obvious that the National Socialist German Workers' Party came to rule Germany through a political process, but Rome spoke as if it came to power in a military conflict. The man sounds practically delusional. A political revolution is simply not the same as a revolution won by a force of arms. So de Grel continues, The trouble with Rome was that those old notebooks had formed indispensable specialists in an exact strategic science, and Rome did not possess that science, nor did anyone in his entourage to win international wars or even control a civil war. More is required than just being a valiant military hard case. And, as we had said earlier, the essay lacked a proper military training. Leon de Grel, who made that assessment in the first of his articles on this topic, was certainly qualified to make that assessment. In in my own experience, it is quite evident that people often despise what they do not know. For instance, in biblical studies, many people I may have debates with despise the value of understanding the Greek because they've never taken the time to study the Greek. Or they despise the value of ancient inscriptions because they've never taken the time to study the inscriptions. They don't know the value. So they just want to dismiss those things, push them out of the way, and forge ahead with their own insolent and arrogant positions. Ernst Rohm doesn't know what it's like to study strategy and, and, and logistics and things like that in a military school which are crucial to the execution of 
major wars, so he despises those things. Moreover, DeGrell says, there were rumors circulating about with regard to his morals, rumors of a very special nature that were readily exploitable and being exploited. These days, being a homosexual no longer seems to be an indelible stain. It is even demanded that such abnormal individuals be granted the right to legally authorize marriage. Some priests here and there even take the initiative and receive their conjugal vows with a melting eye in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But in 1933, especially in the army, such ways were viewed with disfavor. An officer who was an homosexual was inexorably cashiered. Someone recently asked me if de Grell ever made this accusation, and I honestly did not remember that he did, but here it is. I must say, as a digression, that my copy of these articles, which are scanned and are being provided as these podcasts are posted at Christagenia, have none of the usual scribble that accompanies my reading. So perhaps during my first reading of these issues as they were published, I may have missed this series of articles entirely. If I am not mistaken, I think this series of articles is taken from Leon de Grell's book, Hitler Democrat. The Barnes Review doesn't always do a good job of informing us which of Leon de Grell's books it's getting its articles from. Hitler Democrat was written in the early 1990s. His remarks here in regards to sodomy are certainly indicative of the political climate in Europe of the 1990s. De Grell died in 1994. Continuing with Leon de Grell, it so happened that some letters of Rome's had just been sold. Now this is being written in the early 1990s. This is important to note. It so happened that some letters of Rome's had just been sold. Letters written to one of his partners, alluding to these rather special practices, and that's really a an extreme euphemism for sodomy. <laughs> these letters left no room for doubt about the homosexual exploits of the writer, who, it seemed, had put them into practice in the course of his stay in Bolivia. These tropical distractions, transposed to a morally strict Germany, seemed at best in very bad taste. Well, Germany's not so morally strict anymore. A valise was even found in Berlin that Rome had left on a stairway of a house that openly specialized in such activities. He was visiting bathhouses, I guess. The most serious thing was that Rome had gained adherence and that a few emulators had been found among his immediate co-workers. 
Now, there are sources rather hostile to National Socialism, particularly Wikipedia, which claim that Hitler knew that Rome was a sodomite from the, bege- from the beginning. That is obviously a slander, and I cannot fathom what actual evidence upon which such claims may be based, as even the sources which Wikipedia uses to support its claims are all very late. The 1990, I don't want to call it a history, the, the 1990 books on Hitler in the Second World War by William Shirer is one example. Here we see DeGrell supports his own accusations with letters only recently known to him. And therefore, even a relative insider such as DeGrell did not know much beyond some rumors of Rome's immorality until long after Rome's death. To continue with DeGrell, also very offensive were the acts of violence of some of his leaders, their noisy drinking bouts, the luxury that several of several among them paraded, their racing cars and stables, the wild and dissolute life of several of them, relatively young men, sometimes in their thirties, had attained the proportions of a scandal. So Rome, the Marxist who wanted to redistribute Germany's wealth from its shopkeeper classes, its middle classes, was lavishly spending money and partying on National Socialist funds, right? Karl Ernst, the most notorious of them, and one of the youngest generals of the SA, was spending on banquets alone more than 30,000 marks a month, which is 30 times a deputy salary, from party funds. He had the command in Berlin of 300,000 SA men, whereas in a normal army, he would perhaps not have been the commander of so much as a company, or even a platoon. He pranced around on his horse in front of the troops, like a Napoleon entering Potsdam. He owned a dozen very expensive cars and horses of the finest blood. He had the highest order of the Grand Duchy of Coburg hung around his neck by the Grand Duke in person, a relative of the King of Belgium. Ernst had previously been a traveling salesman. His father was a janitor. His special morals, too, caused a lot of gossip. But he had been a placard poster emeritus and an intrepid battler, at a time when there were only a handful of S.A. in Berlin. The dizzy rise of Hitler had carried him from a minor local militant to stupefying heights. Hitler knew very well that the corrupt little princelings of the S.A. would have to be gotten rid of one day, but he was busy with extremely harassing political and social duties. He was also afraid of upsetting many naive militants by hasty expulsions, and feared too that such nettlesome revelations might arouse the indignation 
of a public newly won over. Karl Ernst's counterpart in Breslau, Chief of Police Heinz, was a booving parvenu, or perhaps social climber, of the same stripe. He was young like Ernst, and like Ernst he had hundreds of thousands of men following his orders. He was flanked by a whippersnapper of an assistant with a wiggly rump, who never left his side by so much as a foot, not even a foot of the bed. Mademoiselle Schmidt, he was called, by all the chief's associates. Just as with Ernst, it not only no longer even occurred to Heinz that without Hitler, he and his like would still be waiters or clerks. They both thought that they still hadn't received enough. Karl Ernst was very free in voicing gross insults against Hitler. This is the leader of the essay in Berlin. He had uttered unequivocal threats, among which were, we shall know how to keep Germany from going back to sleep again. Hitler, still silent, had kept an eye on them for months. Their remarks were noted down. Then an incident aggravated the distrust. One day Hitler was about to get in a car that was to take him to Karenhall, Goring's country estate. Sensing with his special instinct an impending danger, at the last moment he had changed cars, and Himmler had taken his place in the official car thus abandoned. While that car was rolling down the highway to Stettin, a window was shattered by a projectile that passed within a few centimeters of Himmler's face. The projectile was obviously intended for Hitler. Himmler was only slightly wounded, but the affair gave pause for thought. Only someone very much up on the Führer's movements could have followed or waited for the car with such painstaking precision. Who and on whose orders? Ernst Rome was less and less secretive about his plans. Assault battalions, quoting Rome, assault battalions will become the Praetorian Guard of the Revolution, citing Brassad, Andre Brassad's book, Hitler in His Time, page 167. He would create a sort of Praetorian and Socialist Republic, an anti-bourgeois S.A. state, in which the brown shirts whose number had not stopped growing, would exercise power dictatorially. And this was only in June of 1933. At the very least, historian Brassad writes, the Camarilla gathered around Rome was methodically preparing the psychological conditions for the proclamation of a second revolution. And a Camarilla is a small group of courtiers, usually describing advisors who share a nefarious purpose with some leader or ruler. Why Rome would want to launch a second revolution of arms against a people who already gave power to the NSDAP 
politically is indicative of his delusional mind and personal aspirations to a grandeur which he could never earn otherwise. Rome wanted to conquer a people who would have no defense against an army of their own government, which is at the same time both cowardly and tyrannical. Rome was a bundle of contradictions, and it is obvious that he had to be removed suddenly and forcibly. DeGrelle continues, and they are my own assessments, DeGrelle continues, with his customary divination of peril, Hitler had charged his most faithful disciple, Sepp Dietrich, with forming for his immediate protection a special guard that would thereafter bear his name, and it was soon to be celebrated, the Liebstandard SS Adolf Hitler. On July 1st, 1933, Hitler once again warned the potential rebels, but this time far more harshly. And we learned last week that he had warned them several times over the months before this. I am resolved to put down without mercy any activities which would tend to disturb the present order. I shall oppose any second wave of revolution with all my energy, because that would end in veritable chaos. Anyone at all who rises up against the authority of the state will be arrested regardless of his rank or position in the party. The threat was clearly meant for people at the top. Ten days later, on July 11, 1933, Mr. Frick, the Minister of the Interior, repeated the stern warning. To talk, he said, of continuing the revolution, let alone carrying out a second one, would be to compromise the legal and constructive evolution desired by the Fuhrer. Such talk constitutes rebellion against the Fuhrer, sabotage of the national revolution and a factor of discord for the German economy which the government is in the process of rebuilding successfully. Any attempt to sabotage the revolution and in particular any arbitrary interference with the economy will be severely repressed. National socialist groups and organizations must not arrogate to themselves or appropriate for themselves, powers which belong exclusively to the head of the government. Citing Benoit Meshan, History of the German Army, Volume 3, page 172. William Frick held the post of Minister of the Interior until 1943, and after the war he died at Nuremberg nobly refusing to testify and become a clown for the kangaroo court. He was a victim of Jewish lies and treachery. Continuing with de Grelle, the next day Hitler returned personally to the charge, saying, the revolution is only a means of coming to power, not an end in itself. Any surgical operation there comes in any surgical operation, there comes a moment when you have to sew back up or kill the patient you intend to heal.
And, as we said earlier, Hitler wanted to raise Germany from the ashes, while Rome wanted to slice it up for himself, as booty won in wartime. De Grel now informs us that, despite the fact that Rome had been forbidden to increase the SA enrollment any further, or to hold spectacular public demonstrations without Hitler's presence, he insolently replied to these orders by rallying 92,000 SA effectives at the Tempelhof airfield as if he himself were the true Führer. So Rome responds to the warnings of Hitler and Frick in open defiance. De Grel now quotes the Banana Republic colonel himself. And Rome said, Anyone who imagines, he cried, that the work of the SA is finished, forgets that we are here and that we are going to stay, come what may. I will not tolerate having the SA shoved aside under any pretext from the objective it has been assigned. Of course, that objective was assigned in Rome's mind. That bordered on rebellion. Already several sections of the SA, stirred up by Rome's appeals for a second revolution, had earlier come close to mutiny. It had been necessary to hurriedly dissolve them. A decree of August 25, 1933, had prohibited anyone not holding a rank from bearing arms. Rome had been eager to respond and did so in November of 1933. Writes historian Jacques Bardot in the Times of November 11, 1933, to prove that he fears no one, Rome concentrates in Breslau the entire SA division of Silesia, comprising five brigades and 29 regiments, amounting to a total of 83,600 men. Most of these units have made marches of several days with all their equipment, and the march past itself lasts more than four hours, the march past, the time it takes to pass a point if you are observing the march, right? Led by the Obergruppenführer Heinz, commandant of the area, the long brown column passes in review before the chief of staff, Ernst Rome. In the lead, flags to the fore, comes a delegation of the Horst Vessel Brigade of the Berlin-Brandenburg Division of the Military Staff Section of the 5th Brigade of Stettin, 2nd District. Then comes the cavalry regiment of the Silesian SA, followed finally by 29 infantry regiments and a motorized regiment in five groups. The defiance of Obengruppenführer Heinz, the commander of the Breslau March Past, had known no bounds. And de Grel quotes him as having said, We are just beginning. De Grel responds, How is Hitler going to react? How? It is almost unbelievable. By having the would-be rebel, meaning Rome, become part of his government, Hitler had discerned the plotting quite clearly. But in those months of uncertainty, 
He could not and did not wish to upset the apple cart. The National Socialist regime was not yet stabilized. The essay was not yet in a state to surmount a great crisis. The Reichswehr, on the other hand, could not be sacrificed in order to comply with the edicts of muddleheads, muddlehead being de Grell's assessment of Rome. To make an enemy of the army at a time like this would be madness, and if the German army and the SA were to have at each other's throats, the other nations would die laughing. Actually, in my assessment, this was a stroke of genius, even if de Grell assesses it differently than I would. With this, Hitler practically neutralized the rebellious Rome as an active adversary for long enough, at least, while giving himself time to establish his government and also prepare to eliminate the rebel entirely, even though that took some prodding. Continuing with de Grell, that being the case, why should not Hitler make Rome, the poacher, into an official game warden? Being made part of the administrative team would no doubt satisfy his vanity. It didn't. To be a cabinet minister, the ex-captain with a nose like a billiard ball would take a seat in the chancellery. chancellery. And then Hitler told himself, if we put the two adversaries together on the same ministerial council, General von Blomberg, Minister of the Reichswehr, and the Commander-in-Chief of the SA, meaning Rome, they will have no choice but to rub shoulders with each other. They will be forced to understand and support one another. That is a classic procedure that judges employ with married couples who want a divorce after a marital battle, or notaries with clients who are wrangling over divergent concerns. But with Rome, a ministerial portfolio was not enough. Besides, in his own way, he was an idealist and little impressed by favors. In any event, it was a stranglehold on the army that he meant to have. Complete authority over the ministry that controlled the Reichswehr. He accepted the appointment haughtily on December 1, 1933. In fact, almost scornfully. He announced to one and all that he would not even take up residence in Berlin as his functions would oblige him to do. He said he would continue to live in Munich. Far from the government he was nevertheless henceforth to be officially a part of. He insisted that his subordinates address him not as minister, but as chief of staff, just as before. Instead of being glad at the possibility of an approach to the Minister of National Defense, meaning Blomberg, the soldier. He did not wish to conciliate him, but to throw him out, him and his accursed Reichswehr. The most he would consider, and that only provisorily, subject to condition, 
was that the SA entered the Reichswehr in force, with each unit strictly maintaining its own authority, and all of his princelings keeping the inflated rank they held in the SA formations. The 30-year-old brigade leaders and division leaders would automatically be the equals of superior officers who had exercised high-level commands during or after World War I and had spent a quarter of a century or more obtaining their red collars. That seems almost insane, making street thugs and Boy Scouts three-star generals overnight. That seems almost insane, but the former traveling salesmen or clerks like Ernst or Heinz, the commanders of the SA in Berlin and Breslau, who had not spent a single day in barracks, even as orderlies, intended in an instant to become the equals of the military commanders of the old Reichswehr. It was evident, moreover, that not a single one of them would consider having anyone but Rome, whose strategic competence was virtually nil, become their Reichswehr minister or chief of staff, as he demanded. The reaction of Minister General von Blomberg was sensible. He did not run down the SA, but militarily he knew its limits, which were indeed evident to the eyes of any specialist who is even slightly informed. Recording some of von Blomberg's remarks, de Grau writes, citing Benoit Mechan, the brown-shirt army is at the very most an army for civil war. It would not be capable of waging victoriously a foreign war. The Reichswehr will never enroll units of the SA and block, nor will it recognize the ranks achieved in the stormtroops. Anybody who wants to enter the army must come here individually and begin at the lowest echelon in the hierarchy. To act otherwise would be to shatter completely the unity of the army. Hitler thought the same way not just by personal conviction, but because he was objective, and then citing Hitler, placing the commander of the SA at the head of the army would have meant disavowing the political ideas I have followed for more than 14 years. Even in 1923, I proposed a former officer, General Erich Ludendorff, to command the army, and not the man who then commanded the stormtroopers, which was Goring. When France, convinced of Hitler's imminent fall, was preparing to break off all negotiations with the Reich, how could he lend himself to any such suicidal merger? His conciliatory gesture in regard to Rome had thus served no purpose. Sooner or later, Hitler would have to put an end to his extravagant ambitions. Personal feelings, General von Siecht had written, must never play any role in comparison with reasons of state. And here de Grel cites Hans von Siecht from his book Thoughts of a Soldier. A long-time Wehrmacht officer during the early years of the National Socialist government 
He served on behalf of Germany as a military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, whose government was fighting Chinese communists. General von Siegt died of natural causes at the age of 70 in 1936. Of course, the second during the Second World War, Chiang Kai-shek was an American ally against Japan. But after the war, it was a secret American policy to assist the Chinese communists and bring them to power. De Grelle continues. Rome was raging, railing at the bourgeois club, spewing out his hatred of the whole capitalist system that Hitler at that very moment was beginning to whip into shape and thanks to which he had already sent nearly three million unemployed back to work and obtained the application of reforms which were completely ameliorating or improving the physical and moral situation of the proletariat. On February 24, 1934, in a speech to the SA leaders of Thuringen, Rome went so far as to proclaim that the accession of Hitler to power had only been a snack. And quoting Roman Lane, he says, The National Socialist Revolution imposes new tasks on us, great and important tasks, beyond everything thus far obtained. The revolutionary elan, or enthusiasm, of the essay will put an end to the stagnation and the spirit of the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper in point, it was well understood. This is de Grelle's response to what Rome had said here, citing Brassad on page 177 of Hitler in his time. The shopkeeper in point, it was well understood, was Hitler. If he does not agree, Rome added, I will forge ahead, and millions of men will follow me. We'll have to eliminate Hitler, put him under lock and key. That's the words of Rome. This is probably August, no, I'm sorry, February of 1934. Perhaps not even three and a half months before the Night of the Long Knives. The revolt that is rumbling more and more in the ranks of the S.A. historian Benoit Meshan observes may very well become explosive at any moment. Settling the S.A. problem is the absolute number one priority. From then on, Rome, for all intents and purposes, was just a rebel. Either he would promptly use his bomb or Hitler would set it off in his hands. A soft leader would allow himself to be surprised. There was nothing soft about Hitler, as Rome was soon to learn. First, let me say that Rome incorrectly classifies Hitler as a capitalist. Hitler believed in free enterprise, but not in capitalism as it was practiced by Jewry in Europe. Hitler believed that the 
money in the nation's economy should be interest-free, and he created an economy based on interest-free money, usury-free money. He also despised international stock markets, and he railed against them in Mein Kampf because the corporations which ran the bankers which owned and ran corporations internationally, Hitler understood, would always come to rule over, to supersede the governments and sovereignty of the people of any state in which they were allowed to function. And Hitler explained that at great length, and the evils of that in great length in Mein Kampf. He was not really a capitalist in the traditional sense of the word. So with each passing day, Ernst Röhm is acting more and more in open rebellion, and only temporarily stayed by his appointment to a cabinet position. Here we will proceed immediately to the next article in De Grel's series, which is The Rome Crisis Nears Its Climax, The Last Millimeters of the Fuse. It was just at the time when Adolf Hitler had finished explaining to the commanders of the old army that their most immediate mission would be not only to beef up their contingents, but to inaugurate new tactics by motorizing their forces with the ill will of other countries on the increase, especially France at this time. The need for Germany to create compact armored units was urgent. On the subject of Ernst Rome, Hitler remained circumspect. With one and all, we will have to let the matter work itself out. That didn't mean that Hitler would fail to take precautions. But now that trouble at meetings was a thing of the past, and complete quiet reigned in the streets, keeping three million SA effectives mobilized no longer made any sense and as we had said before, they basically became obsolete. A half or a third that many men would more than suffice to handle whatever political threat might still arise. That immense and idle army was now only an instrument of pressure of a few petty chieftains who were overtly ambitious or who had lost their heads. In his heart, Hitler had made the decision he was going to radically reduce the number of SA effectives who had become useless and dangerous besides. And this is, of course, why ancient Rome put idle soldiers to work building public infrastructure so that they would not grow restless and cause insurrection. Moreover, Degrel continues, that would be a means of calming a certain amount of the uneasiness that had arisen in other countries, where the existence of the SA had caused apprehension in the public mind. We know that on February 21, 1934, Hitler had announced to Mr. Anthony Eden of Britain that he was going to reduce the SA by two-thirds. Thus, by about two million men. Those remaining would be no more than simple politico-civil than a simple politico-civil organization without military duties of any kind. Those pledges made by Hitler 
Mr. Dumerg had arrogantly rejected, and Rome had been yet more arrogant than President Dumerg. With that proposal of Hitler's government, Rome saw himself on the point of being stripped at any moment of two-thirds of his cohorts, who would then be further reduced to a troop emasculated not just numerically, but weapons-wise, since in the future they would be less well-armed than the municipal guards or municipal police. Gaston Dumerg was president of France from June, 20, June of 1924 through June of 1931, and prime minister for ten months in 1934. He was a Freemason and longtime politician, whose first term as prime minister was for six months in 1914. De Grel continues, Rome had not waited more than 24 hours before pouring out his fury. February 1934. Rome says, The essay form an unshakable bastion raised against reaction. The petit bourgeois and the hypocrites, for they embody everything represented by the idea of revolution. From the very first day, the fighter in the brown shirt has marched on the road that leads to revolution, and he will not move aside from that road by so much as a foot. And again, the new German regime, manifesting an incomprehensible indulgence in not ruthlessly sweeping away the supports that the henchmen of the old regime, peace and order, those are their passwords, and in that spirit they meet with all levels and all factions of the hidebound bourgeois. So Rome is mocking his own government for coddling the traditional German businessmen who weren't all Jews. In fact, many of them were actually German. De Grel continues in reference to Rome. Reaction and revolution, he shouted, are mortal enemies. There is no bridge that can be laid between them. The one excludes the other. It had been evident earlier in some of the statements by Rome provided by de Grel here that Rome saw Hitler as a mere reactionary and ordinary conservative politician. And that is why he says here, reaction and revolution are mortal enemies, seeing Hitler as a mere reactionary. De Grau continues, and he says that for form's sake, Rome had made reference to still, he had made reference still to fidelity to Hitler. But what imaginable fidelity could there be after such a rejection, after the things that Rome said about the party and Hitler? Rome had definitely crossed the Rubicon, even if he did not understand what that historic rebellion signified. Rome had not, in fact, waited for this occasion to start his counter-thrust. For weeks, the Schleicher-Strasser-Rome plot had been a reality. Loose talk and bragging had already made it known to the state police. The participation of the French ambassador in their intrigues was known. 
His visits and meetings with the apprentice conspirators were followed. Rome had increased the importance of his forces as much as possible. He had created his own totally independent political service and public relations service. And German General Kurt von Schleicher, mentioned here in the Schleicher-Strasser-Rome plot, was the last Chancellor of Germany during the Weimar Republic. Throughout the early years of the National Socialist government, he was constantly engaged in behind-the-scenes politicking, I should say throughout the early year and a half, or early months of the National Socialist government. He only lived for about 18 of them. He was constantly engaged in behind-the-scenes politicking, especially involved with Gregor Strasser, attempting to exploit divisions in the NSDAP so as to weaken the party and gain political advantage for himself. Both he and Strasser would lose their lives on the Night of the Long Knives. The reference to the French ambassador is to André-François Ponce, who was a friend of Schleicher's and a suspected partner in his intrigues. Returning to Leon de Grel, who quotes another source in reference to Rome, and, and one thing that disappointed me about de Grel here in this series of articles is that he really didn't go into much depth concerning the Schleicher-Strasser-Rome plot. He only basically mentions it. He he mentions little things about it here, but nothing of great substance by which to help us understand it better. We would have to go to other sources. Returning to Leon de Grel, who quotes another source in reference to Rome, he organized a new series of immense processions and tried, in general, to demonstrate by uninterrupted, triumphant parades that the forces of the essay were intact. At the same time, he had procured fairly large quantities of arms, in part by purchases abroad. And the Barnes Review footnotes are wanting. Here I think de Grel is citing a book by historian Joachim Fest, which is simply titled Hitler, and published by Harcourt in 1974. De Grel continues by responding in regard to Rome's actions and asks, Arms? For what? Against whom? Against the army? Against Hitler? If not, against whom? So he continues citing, Jochem Fest, it is undeniable that these activities were resented by Hitler and by the military leaders as a provocation. The Reichswehr chiefs appeared more openly in public. Rome is losing out, General Werner von Blomberg concluded laconically. His account will soon be settled. And de Grel continues, for their part, Rome's men were ready. We read in Benoit Meshan, in the history of the German army, three groups exist at this time among the commandants of the SA. First, a little Camarilla gathered around Rome, 
consisting of the most powerful generals of the brown-shirt army, and bound together by a shared ambition and morals, a shared morals meaning that perhaps they were all sodomites. Then a certain number of commanders, who have no allegiance to this coterie, but who continue to obey Rome out of a spirit of discipline. Finally, a few commanders ousted from the high command, who are disturbed by Rome's plans. De Grel then says, some of them were already taking action. Benoit Méchant continues, emboldened by the cynical declarations and the bad example of their commanders, small groups of SA members began here and there to engage in acts of violence. In the later days of May, squads of brown shirts ransack the big Karstadt stores in Hamburg, and the police have to intervene to reestablish order. Scenes of the same sort take place in Frankfurt and Dresden. At Munich, where spirits are running especially high, guards of the German general, I'm sorry, guards of the general staff of the SA are wandering the streets and singing revolutionary verses. One of them has this significant verse for its refrain. Sharpen your long knives on the edge of the sidewalk. So we see that the use of the phrase long knives in the elimination of these rebels may be quite ironic. De Grel continues by exclaiming that it went far beyond that and continuing his citation from Benoit Méchant, they do not hesitate to proclaim that the second revolution is close at hand, that the day it begins they will settle their accounts with all their enemies, these are the S.A. leaders bragging, and that they w- and that, that will be the start of carnage such as Germany has never seen. And de Grel states, this time the Reich was on the threshold of all-out bloody civil war. Hitler would make one last attempt. On June 4, 1934, he summoned Rome to the Chancellery, and for five hours hammered away, trying to convince him. Hitler was quite the altruistic one. Hitler himself has related how hard he tried. Quoting Hitler, I adjured him strive against all that folly to avoid a catastrophe. It was in vain. The discussion lasted fruitlessly until midnight. Hitler did not fail either to tell Rome that he could expect what he could expect if he persevered in his senseless plan. I will personally, quoting Hitler again, I will personally and immediately smash any attempt that might plunge Germany back into anarchy. Anyone who attacks the administration must be prepared to number it among his enemies. Rome left the Chancellery, cursing, and would not be seen there ever again. He understands that he will never win Hitler over to his views. He makes a show of yielding to the Fuhrer's admonishments, but he immediately forms a second plan, which he communicates to the members of his entourage. 
The SA will shortly launch a sudden attack in Berlin and occupy the ministerial buildings by surprise. Hitler will be imprisoned first thing and put in solitary confinement. The plan is immediately adopted by the Camarilla, by, by Ernst Röhm's circle of comrades and advisors. Hain in Saxony and Heinz in Silesia sound out the police to learn how they will react, which is a fairly bold move because it reveals your plans. The plot, if we are to believe the communication of the French ambassador, André François Poncet, the friend of Schleicher's, to his government, in other words, Poncet, a friend of Schleicher's, was relaying the plans revealed to him by his friend Schleicher, who was in on this conspiracy with Strasser in Rome, at the top of it, Poncet was relaying those plans back to the French government. <coughs> the plot, if we are to believe the communication of the French ambassador to his government, would have gone beyond just arresting the Fuhrer. His arrest would have been followed by his physical liquidation. One other fact is conclusive. With an eye to the operation, Rome had put together a secret fund of 12 million marks. This fact is formally confirmed by Benoit Méchan. A war chest, the historian writes, a war chest of 12 million marks had been collected, a fantastic sum for those times. Before the decisive elections of March of 1933, assured Hitler to vote, giving him plenary powers, Dr. Hjalmar Schott had invited the 12 most important businessmen of Germany to a meeting and had afterward collected in his hat checks amounting to 3 million marks. That sum had served to finance the great election campaigns not only of Hitler's party, but of the so-called national parties of Alfred Hugenberg, Franz von Papen, and Associates. On the day of the vote, there were still 600,000 marks in the treasury that had not been spent. In other words, the 12 million marks secretly collected by Rome through pressure on financial circles represented a subversive force whose like no group in Germany had ever before possessed. In other words, 12 million marks was a huge war chest much huger than all of the nationalist parties in early 1933 had at their disposal for the elections. Or that's the point which de Grelle is trying to make. They may have had money from other sources. Acting with the greatest, in greatest urgency, Hitler decided on June 6, 1934, to send the entire essay on vacation for a month. That would perhaps still give him some time to find a compromise solution, 
At the same time, it would give proof to the other countries that Hitler's government did not need the 3 million SA to stay in power or maintain public order, since Hitler would be able to dispense with them quite readily for an entire month. Two days later, on June 8, 1934, Rome reacted with unconcealed anger. The enemies of the SA will receive the answer they deserve at the right time and in the manner of our choosing. If our enemies believe that the SA will not return from their leave, or will return only partially, they are mistaken. The SA are and will remain the masters of Germany's destiny. De Grel states, one could hardly announce more deliberately that there would soon be a settling of accounts. A significant detail, at a time when every communication made to the SA was invariably ended with the prescribed Heil Hitler. This time the salute was omitted, as if the Führer had already ceased to exist. Speaking of this plot, that people after 1945 were pleased to depict as an imaginary plot, of course. The Hitler scorners have since then had to pull in their horns a bit. Former police officer Gisevius, a fanatical anti-Hitlerite, was forced to acknowledge that there is indubitably some truth in the story of the Putsch. First of all, everyone can smell that second revolution there is so much talk about. The SA are sharpening their daggers, though they aren't the only ones. Sooner or later, Rome is going to strike by the sheer force of circumstances. In the second place, it is very possible that he and General Kurt von Schleicher have something cooked up between them. There surely must have been some cynical words said in the course of the evening passed in the company of Francois Poncet, the ambassador to France. The French ambassador, I'm sorry. Apparently, this cites Gisevius's book To the Very Dregs from volume 1, page 209. I had talked about the problems with that citation in the last Barnes Review article. At the beginning of this series of articles, de Grel's opening paragraphs, I'm sorry, in the Barnes Review's articles that we had presented last week. At the beginning of this series of articles last week, de Grel's opening paragraphs contained citations from the biography of Hans Bernd Gesevius, a German diplomat and intelligence officer and a member of the inner circle of Abwehr commander Wilhelm Canaris. De Grel continues, a French historian André Brassard, also no Nazi, meaning that Brassard was not sympathetic to the National Socialists, has asked himself the question again and again, did Rome really have any plans for a putsch? His answer, it is impossible to rule out the possibility. In vain, de Grel says, in vain he has tried to find some document or other in the archives of Nuremberg that would make it possible to deny the plot. And quoting him again, the criminal case concerning the affair of the Night of the Long Knives, which took place from the 6th to the 14th of May of 1954 
in Munich, and which I attended, meaning the French historian André Brassard, shed no light on this important point, meaning that Brassard found nothing in the criminal case concerning the affair of the Night of the Long Knives to show that the planned putsch by Ernst Rome and company was not real. The commander of the SA, he adds, was no plaster saint, and it is possible, if not probable, that at this important turning point in his political rise, Rome once again followed his natural bent, which was to risk his destiny in conspiracy and revolutionary combat. At the very least, Prasad adds, the Camarilla gathered around Rome was preparing the psychological conditions for proclaiming a second revolution. So Brassad couldn't establish that there was no plot for a putsch, but he tried hard, is basically what de Grel presents here. <coughs> but de Grel says, Rome's aim is no longer contested, even by Brassad. He acknowledges... There is every reason to believe that Rome was dallying with plans which, had they been successful, would have brought about the elimination of the Fuhrer rather quickly. He was dallying with the plans. That's the best Prasad could do. Many historians wishing to paint Hitler blacker than he was in the affair have applied too much whitewash to Rome. So Prasad's trying to sound objective. What Rome wanted was a sort of Praetorian Socialist Republic, an S.A. anti-bourgeois state in which the brown shirts, whose numbers had never ceased to increase, would exercise power directly. The Hitler-Rome conflict was a very deep-seated one, and Rome's repeated challenges, the demonstrations of force by the S.A., and the threats made by their leader, were certainly indicative of a will to action it must have seemed to the wary old birds on the overcrowded general staff like plans for a putsch. Silbersod would just never go admit that there were plans for a putsch. He said that Rome seemed like he had plans for a putsch and that he was dallying with plans. Brassad concludes in this citation anyway. Sharpen Your Long Knives is certainly a song of the S.A. De Grel goes on to say that we know how, after World War II, the whole Rome affair was twisted and presented to the public in detective serial fashion as a base squaring of accounts between the bloodthirsty Hitler and an S.A. commander of whom he was jealous and typically the Jews would promote the sodomite as a saint. The most stupid kind of tittle-tattle has been presented as solid fact, but today the truth is not even debatable any longer. It has been established not on the basis of ludicrous bunkum, but on official documents and historical testimony. Rome was in a state of rebellion. His bully boys the princelings of the S.A. His bully boys were ready for anything. 
to overthrow Hitler, to imprison him, to assassinate him. General Schleicher, for his part, had decided to make Rome and Gregor Strasser the two leading lights of his coming government. The French ambassador, Monsieur Francois Poncet, was in frequent contact with the future putschists and kept his government accurately informed about them. His military attaché, General Rancudeau, announced in his final report that a bloody conflict is inevitable. A strange malaise was sensed everywhere. Things are going badly, Marshal von Hindenburg growled. He had called Hitler to his summer residence at Newdeck. It is high time you put your house in a little order. Get rid of the troublemakers who are compromising the National Socialist regime. De Grel concludes. The explosives' last millimeters of the fuse were burning. The bomb could go off at any time. Who would be the first to throw it, Hitler or Rome? We have to act, Hitler said at last. We have to strike, and strike fast. As we have explained before, von Hindenburg died a month after the night of the Long Knives, and two weeks after that, Adolf Hitler gained new power in an astounding election victory. We shall discuss these things from the subsequent writings of Leon de Grel, when we return here next week. Yahweh, God be willing. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.